Hi folks, how the devil are you doing? I hope you've had a good week. Has it been a week since we spoke? It feels like it's been a few days. There's been so much going on. It's been a busy old time of it and a wonderful time of it. In fact, just on Friday there, we held our first soundtrack and film club with Everyman Cinemas. Now, this is going to be something that we're going to run regularly. And the idea is that we can get to you at as many of the 42 sites around the country as possible. But we're starting off small with just one screen. And we started off in London on Friday with Emerald Fennell and a preview screening of Saltburn, which we recorded and we're going to share with you uh, in the coming weeks. In fact, in a couple of weeks when the film's uh, released. We've got our next event already up and ready to go, which is happening a week today, the 13th of November at Everyman Broadgate in London uh, with the wonderful team behind American Symphony. Now, this is a film that is, I wouldn't call it a straight up documentary. It's loosely a documentary about John Batiste, the uh, amazing creative and musician. But it's much more than that. It's much more about his wife, Salika Juad, and it's just the most extraordinary story of determination, of positivity and creativity. It's been directed by Matthew Heineman, and we're really thrilled that we've got a special screening and all three are going to join us for a post-film Q&A. So if you want to come along, just head to our socials. All the details are up there where you can buy tickets to come and join us at Everyman Broadgate on the 13th of November. I hope to see you there. But in the meantime, we've got a double header for you on our latest episode of Soundtracking. So busy we are at the moment. First up, our writer, director, Molly Manning-Walker and songwriter, producer, DJ and composer, James Jacob, who also goes by the professional moniker of Jack Wobb. Now, they join me to discuss Molly's powerful and important debut feature, How to Have Sex. You might have seen me banging on about this on Instagram and stuff. Uh, which has already scooped a major award at Cannes and it's just picked up a plethora of Biffa nominations as well. How to Have Sex deals with that very particular rite of passage for girls of a certain age as three young female friends travel to Crete in search of sun, sand and possibly you know what. I don't want to say about how I reacted to this film because you'll hear that within my conversation with Molly but needless to say what I will say about the film is that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I came away personally connected to it, informed by it, and I feel like it might be one of the most powerful films and important films of quite some time. Now, we've also got writer-director Kitty Green to talk about her new film, which is the psychological thriller The Royal Hotel, which sees two backpackers land jobs in a remote Australian bar with events uncoiling thereafter in a truly gripping and suspenseful fashion. Plenty more from Kitty in a bit, but we will begin with Molly and James, who not only scored the film, but also helped source the needle drops. And here's one of his as yet unreleased cues, which he very, very kindly sent us, cab to the airport.
James Molly, thanks so much for for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm blown away by your film. To be honest, it's just um, absolutely fantastic. Congratulations. And also, Molly, congratulations on Scrapper. Bloody great job on that as well. I loved your guys' podcast together. That was so great. Oh, my God. That was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a brilliant human being. Just so great, yeah. Listen, my, it was so great because my first recollection of the film was seeing, uh, I think, seeing like a poster of it and seeing that Mia was in it. And I'd seen Mia in a previous film that she absolutely stole every scene that she was in and got the chance to host a Q&A with her and her director and stuff. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to see where you go and what you do. And the way that she's told this story with her performance is just, oh, it's so I just want her to go in everything. Tell me where this started for you. Where did this journey for this film start? Because, you know, it's, it's set in a specific kind of sort of time, but I feel like I found it kind of, it made me go back to me at that age and kind of have a conversation with myself about situations that I'd been in, even around that age, not necessarily on holiday with, with girlfriends and stuff. And I feel like, the film will encourage, I hope it encourages people to not to be judgmental about things or people, but to have a conversation. Yeah, so I went on a bunch of these holidays as a teenager, 16, 17, 18. <laughs> I Napa, Magaluf, um, Ibiza. So it kind of came from, I like re- reconnected with some mates um, at a wedding and we were talking about the blowjob scene that happens on stage that we all saw on a holiday. Yeah, we were on a bar crew and like all the games were like quite sexual, like passing shots between mouths and stuff. But then it like escalated mm. to this point. I thought I'd like been the only one that had been like, what is happening? I'm really shocked by this. And then turns out everyone else was as shocked as me. But we were all just being like, whoa, having a great time. Keep going. And so, yeah, I started writing it. And that's kind of like where it came came from. Did you have an idea when you were writing it about like what you wanted it to be, what you wanted those questions to be that it threw up, what you wanted it to encourage people to think about and talk about, really. Yeah, definitely. I guess I, I, like my main thing was that that consent had kind of become too binary about yes or no, but it should really be about two people having a good time. And especially when we were young, we were so unaware of that. Like, oh, sex is meant to be two people having a great time. It was just this pressure-fueled thing that... I guess reflecting on on those holidays really brought that up for me. And what was the reality of, you know, once you'd written the script and kind of got that cast together of, of the filming of it, because watching it, you're so immersed in the experience, you know, that kind of just those feelings and those kind of, you know, that feeling of that time of day, you know, where you're kind of almost like there's no real st- start and stop of those kind of nights out or do you know what I mean and stuff and that kind of thing. And that feeling of like when you get in that room for the first time, you know, of, of with the girlfriends and the possibilities. And all I mean, there's so much sensual kind of nature around the film as well. In those clubs, meeting people, being left on your own and bumping into people who kind of scoop you up and all that stuff. But so what was the kind of reality of, of filming it in terms of what you had to take with you? What was there? What you kind of were able to, because it's yes, so, so realistic. So all of the extras are cast. They're like, there's no real. No way. Real- yeah they're all cast and uh they really became part of our cast you know because like they were so invested in the project and because 
it's not like here where you like call an agency and they send loads of extras they were just like real people of the island but so they really understood it as well because they were like we've been in these we've seen this for years so they were all across Crete basically and we were out of season so shooting November so it was cold uh so yeah we kind of created all of it as much as we tried to create a documentary like look to it it's all crafted yeah that's really interesting because in those moments of kind of reflection that she has, you know, where she's walking down the street, the empty street sort of thing, I guess that was easier to do than out of season in terms of kind of when it there's, was like... There's 15 behind the camera. The whole time. <laughs> like we're holding back because there were still tourists, but we were like holding back these people yeah. trying not to walk. We had to perform crying to like 50 people stand, stood behind cameras. We like, please don't walk in, please don't walk in. Wow. And how much did you give them the opportunity to kind of improvise in, in certain places where it might be right to to give them that opportunity? Yeah, try to free them up to be as free as possible. You know, it, most of it is like riffing on the script, but we we wrote like huge backstories together. And um, mm. I gave them DV cams in, in rehearsal. So they kind of got used to this idea of like really being That's their characters idea. and yeah, so I was like asking them, oh, what, what's your favourite chat up line? And they were like interviewing each other, being like, why are you pulling that face? And so they really started to like understand what who they were kind of thing. That's interesting about the backstory, because one of the things that, you know, kind of watching it, that thing of not wanting to take myself out of it, of trying to scribble down notes and stuff. James, I promise I'm going to get to you in a second. I'm so sorry. I've got so much to talk about the music because the music's so important on so many levels. But the backstory idea is so interesting because one of the things that I really found interesting is that kind of relationship with those three girls the subtle but harsh jealousy that's there there's always someone left out in a free so like when they first get there it's kind of like sky and tara and em's like being a bit nerdy about the holiday and then like you kind of realize that they've actually been friends the longest and then mm. when tara goes missing the other two kind of like connect in a way that tara then feels left out so it's kind of always this triangle of like who's left out in which scene yeah, because you almost kind of feel like you could have a film about each character before they arrive on that island as well. As well, That's how kind of rich we arrive at their stories in terms of the way you've written it. That's very nice. What about the music then? Because you've got like, I mean, that Emanike song as well was like, I bloody love that song. So I was really annoying at the person next to me when it's like, oh my God, like literally having a wee party in my seat. Do you know what I mean? When there were certain songs coming on. What was in the script in terms of music, you know, both in terms of, Needle Drops existing music, which is obviously a big part of that environment that they're in. But then, you know, working with with James on this, this really, I mean, the score is just gorgeous in terms of, you know, there's that lovely kind of ethereal element near the start with the voices and things and just how that, the journey of the score as well. Talk to me a little bit about how the communication you guys had about, you know, what what that would be and how these those two things would work together. What's great about this is, all the questions you're asking are kind of the same questions I had when I first saw the first clips of the film. I was kind of blown away by how like realistic it was. I couldn't believe as well that a lot of the a lot of the extras were extras. They weren't like people, mm. just random people. And I thought it was real. So I think the basis of the score actually was reality. We were trying to like put ourselves right in that place. Maybe a little bit, even a year before you shot it, or within the year you shot it, because music dates quite quickly but in Malia it doesn't it's like they'll play music mm. back in the early noughties they're still playing like number ones from like 10 15 years ago 
I think that was one kind of one starting point, wasn't it, Molly? We, you know, kind of setting the period, and also yeah, find tunes that weren't so annoying that um, people would dislike them, but tunes that had kind of a long shelf life and would kind of be memorable and kind of still have emotional value attached to them. Because it's kind of hard sometimes with dance music. Because James was really involved in finding some of the big bangers as well. You know, as much as he was making the score. <laughs> There's a real collaboration between our like music supervisor, editor, and James to find the other songs that that existed in there. And I text James being mm-hmm. like, I'm looking for like a whack Western. And he texts back with the song that's in the film. And it's like, <laughs> everyone else was like, how did you understand that direction? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. You're synced. <laughs> I think there's there's an element of comedy attached to some of it. Like it wasn't too, the kind of extreme, kind of wild situations a lot of the time. Like you see in the film, there's some like really crazy parties they go to and stuff. And for some people, I get well in our age now, we're kind of like, what is going on here? Like we wouldn't wouldn't necessarily naturally get, want to go to these environments as adults. So we have to be very careful of kind of choosing the film, uh, the music that would actually really yeah. work in those like environments and not be too silly with it, but also try and lift it. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so we're kind of throwing a lot of tunes back and forth over text, kind of, does this work? Does this work? Because we kind of knew what, the, I think even when you, we sat down before you'd shot anything, we kind of knew what these scenes were kind of going to be. And we talked about them and I've had like a lot of, exposure to those environments while I've been DJing and kind of know the vibe a little bit as well so it's yeah it was a really fun process trying to find that that music yeah I bet you've never DJed a live blowjob though no I haven't <laughs> never spoken sure about that want... actually, have you? I'm not sure my mum would be happy with that <laughs> <laughs> but when you were having those conversations about about the score Molly, you know, in terms of what it was, you know, is it her thought process? Is it her kind of internalization? Is it, you know, what what is it? Did you did you talk about it in that respect in terms of kind of what its role was? We kind of designed all of the film in two halves. So yeah, I guess it does track her emotion, but um the first half was like this Disneyland uh ethereal, like, wow, we're on the best party ever. And the second half is like more internal and like and and tracks her her thought process and and I guess the bass became a real big part of that, of like one thing that I really realised when I stayed there for the first time as an adult rather than as a teenager was that like mm. the bass is so constant and you when you feel uncomfortable, it cuts you to your core. Like it's like the anxiety raises when when you can't get away from this bass. It's like, Marr! 
and you're like, you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my God, it's still going. Mm. Yeah, we kind of designed that as part of the real essence of how she feels. It was kind of, um, yeah, also that the, the similar feeling of like waking up at a festival and you just can hear the bass. He's like, it's relentless for like days. I and mean, if you haven't been to Malia, <laughs> that's the next kind of closest feeling to it. But yeah, we thinking about the film in two halves because there was always that talk of like, oh, this more happy or just the dance music in general will start like morphing into score and like this sort of sort of um, hum of like anxiety and like then start kind of like when she's in the club basically at the end that's kind of when it all kind of comes to a head and the dance music in the club turns into the score and it kind of goes more internal. apparent in the film when you watch it it's like you're kind of drawn into this false sense of security throughout the whole thing and then by the end of it you kind of what I've noticed in screenings is everyone's laughing at the beginning and by the end it's just like you could hear a pin drop at so many moments yeah yeah you're drawn in and you're really in Tara's like sort of space and kind of seeing what she's seeing and feeling I think that's what we talked about at the beginning anyway and yeah and that's kind of where we've ended up it was really fun like that bit where, where Badger picks her up and puts her in bed. It's a bed, yeah. I'd written that down, yeah. The start had always been quite similar. And then, like, we're like, what if this was also a club tune? Like, how does it feel if we, like, go for, make, look at every score and then just, like, put a slight like, club twist on it? And, like, that's my, that's my favorite bit of score in the film. that side of it do you like working with I, with with your composer on that part of telling your story me and james have been friends for like maybe quite a long time what do we think seven oh. years got to be more than that when we yeah when have you uni uh, kind of yes yeah, so maybe eight nine years something like that yeah and also james is like such a calm collected soul and is like actually training to be a therapist as well so like i would go oh, wow. and probably get a free therapy session about making the film and and just hang out and make music it was a real lovely process 
I guess because you're you you make music as a as a producer it was like a really quick process so we got to try loads of stuff and like let's just try Mm -hmm. that and then yeah I really really enjoyed making the music from the film. Is it a different approach in terms of how you're making music because rather than making it for a person or an artist it's got to fulfill something different hasn't it in a way or does it for you? But this so this is my this will be my (laughs) first feature film and it was a massive is it man like a huge learning curve for me but also an amazingly like fun easy process with molly like it was it felt like a really special place when you'd come in i'd have tried a load of stuff and then it was really really like it's so different because it's so much more almost more satisfying because you've got this picture and it's like you know straight away if it doesn't work and you're not trying to like gain the approval of anybody we're not it's just whether we're sitting in the room and if it does something to us or whether it fits it's like a puzzle and I kind of know dance I feel like I know dance music pretty well I've grown up from when I when I was tiny I've been listening to music and exposed to dance music and kind of know the spectrum of it don't have to take it seriously all the time and kind of know all the little pockets we try lots of different things out and it's like it felt very free and then also so satisfying when it just works it's like yeah well that's it that's fine. And like, if we get it, then mm. surely other people are going to get it. We don't have to kind of go too deep on this. And yeah, and I think it was what it was supposed to be and just just fun. Like a lot of the content in the film is fun and a lot of it is a lot more serious. And it's it's um, interesting, actually, there's that one scene of the, um, when they were running into the be- the sea. That was like a la- later edition, wasn't it, Molly? Like we did that right at the end or we just like moved something to it and it was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And like, I don't know. That's the one we changed just normal score to like more of a club vibe right at the end yeah and it's just got this weird nostalgic i don't know how do you describe that the feeling in that that area of the film yeah i don't know like you can't escape that base In general, it's just a really positive experience kind of collaborating on it because um, a lot of the time in music, it can be a lot of back and forth and a lot of, oh, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about this. Whereas I think we were pretty good at communicating and it was a healthy, fun experience. And yeah, as you said, it, what was nice is you coming in from the quite, what felt like the chaos of sort of the post-production of the film and then you'd come into the room and hopefully find some like calm and like yeah then yeah I love I, that I like to promote that in, in my space and I think yeah it's it doesn't need to be like a stressful um sort of deadline environment we're making music it's like we're just kind of like in a, in a play in a sort of playground really it doesn't, doesn't need to be so serious with a lot of the club <laughs> stuff I imagine because there's the diegetic element of it that you know when they're in those environments where they're you know kind of out and about and whether and they're singing the songs or whatever you know like and also um the one and only doing the karaoke and stuff you've got to clear that up front like you know in terms of so you've got to make those decisions beforehand which is kind of like there's an element of kind of like sort of trepidation around it kind of thing because you're like shit I hope this works do you know what I mean in terms of 
but you've got to clear that in advance sort of thing as well. But you're, you know, it's having confidence in what you've chosen and those choices that you've made with regards to that. Did you kind of, was there a journey with all that in terms of deciding, you know, what you needed to to get up front, to clear, to use and, you know, why Chesney yeah, so Hawks just- as well? <laughs> why no, not but you know what I mean why not <laughs> um, so we just cleared two songs before we shot which was uh, Head and Heart the um, Joel Corey M&E K song yeah. the theory was that that was their song and we actually cleared it for yeah. like 25 minutes and we, they were going to sing it way more but it's so it so gets in your head anyway that we were like maybe 25 minutes <laughs> over over kill Oh my God, oh my God, these feelings just begun I'm saying things I've never said, doing things I've never done Oh my God, oh my God, when I see you I shoot it right But I'm frozen in motion and my head tells me to stop Tells me to stop Feel things, feel things, I feel about us Try to fight it, but it's never enough and maybe this is not a great thing to say but i'm gonna say it anyway we actually had another song for karaoke and then pulled it last minute and um that's all right the, that happens the one and only was like we got a list of them and it's kind of interesting on what she's saying. Like there's, she's got all this confidence at the beginning and she's like, yeah. So it kind of, it can, kind of came from looking at the list and being like, this feels like it sums up how she's feeling about herself in this moment. She's like, you know, she's not shy. She's fully up for it. She's involved. She wants the party um, mm. before it comes all crashing down. kind of example of one of those songs that like I mean god that song's got to be what 30 odd years old or something but it's still so. like one of those songs like Rick Astley's never going to give you up or something do you know what I mean where it's kind of like weirdly like like my 10 year old when we went to Glastonbury he was like can we go and watch Rick Astley and I'm like sorry <laughs> it's kind of like and it's purely based on that song because but I, I was like where have you heard this it's like so weird how <laughs> Music kind of permeates their conscience in whatever way that is, I think. But One and Only is another one of those songs and it's like, it just seems to be floating. It feels like almost right that it's there because it's still something that people would get in a bar and sing along to. 
Yeah, weirdly, at the World Cup in the summer after we shot, everyone was texting me, they're singing the one and only at the World Cup, but Jesse Yorks is on, on the pitch, kind of thing. And I was like, that's amazing. It's still going. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. Were you, I guess, with, with them, with those scenes in the clubs and stuff, is that in terms of playing music? So you're getting those, being able to capture that environment as well. How do you kind of navigate that in terms of, you know, being able to capture dialogue and things realistically? So hard. So, yeah, you'd, we'd have to turn <laughs> music up full blast, get everyone dancing, and then cut the music, call action. And then they would naturally all stop dancing because your instinct is like, oh, the music's gone. And then we'd have to, like, G them up again. Like, the ADs were really good at it. Um, but also you kind of want them all dancing to the same beat. So like me and James made playlists for each club to try and match the BPM. And then it gets to the day and you're like, just put Beyonce on, just put anything on so that they'll dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like so hard to coordinate 200 people. I was just thinking back to what you just said about what songs were kind of important. Those was uh, the Romy tune as well. There were a few songs I feel like you you had like, at the beginning, before you'd even shot anything, you were like, these these songs are really important to the journey, and they en- ended up staying in a lot of the time. That felt like a big, I don't know, it was always at the end, and it always kind of worked at the end, and then it stayed. Um, yeah. Emotional closeout. Yeah, the Romy, Romy, I got really lucky in that Romy sent me her album before it was out, and, and was like, oh, I heard you're making a clubbing film, and like maybe there's like a collaboration that we could do at some point. And I wow. was in the thick of prep, so I was like, maybe, you know, it was a bit hectic for me. But I listened to the album and I was just like, these songs are sum up the film so perfectly. And that emotional clubbing connection. And I just got obsessed with Strong. And and so, yeah, it became the credit, the credit song. And then and definitely influenced what we were doing in the film as well with the music. You've been strong for so long. journey in the edit as well you know in terms of as a as a creative that's that can be you know sometimes people go in there and they're very strict in terms of what they've shot with regards to the film they want to make and other times people go and then they've got tons of extra stuff or whatever and the, you know the film's kind of almost kind of it's another filmmaking process within the edit how did the film change or shape in the edit for you or did I was really it? lucky that I had our great editor Finn out with us when we were shooting so she was editing live as we were going. That was amazing because we were like, oh, this scene's not really working, but if we had this shot, you know, and because we were shooting in one hotel, we were all living there. We were right on the strip. Like it was almost like a back lot. So if we felt like we hadn't got something, we could go back in and get it. But there was basically a bunch of sequences that I tried really, 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 really hard to get in the film. 
that were all music video sequences that we shot in each club. So yeah. we shot everyone frozen and the only person dancing in the club was Tara, which is like a bit of a nod to the ASAP Rocky video I did with Frank. And then we shot Paddy and Tara em- dancing in an empty club that we were going to cut between a full club and an empty club. And then we also shot everyone leaving at one frame a second. So it's like super blurry. And she's just stood in the middle of the club, like really lonely. So these like sequences that I felt so like emotionally connected to, I think because on the day as well, mm. they really excited us as as crew and as cast. Like everyone was like, wow, we're making something. Yeah, they just didn't fit in, sadly. Should get them out as little kind of um, trailers ahead of the film coming out. Definitely. I think that's fan, hopefully. Yeah. The dying art of music videos. It's like, come on, please keep it alive. What's next? Um, <laughs> rest. <laughs> um, and then got like a couple of ideas that are slowly marinating, but they're slow cooked. James, <laughs> uh, there was the tastiest. James, I really hope it sounds like you've had the most positive, brilliant experience of making your first feature film. So I really hope this is the start of that continuing for you because you've done an extraordinary job with this thank you very much i hope so too like it seems to have sparked a lot of interest i guess across industries and like yeah i'm just really proud to be and grateful to be involved in such an important film like with an important message yeah so well executed like it's just and something so close to my journey as a person as well being in dance music and having experiences not and, and bad experiences in in different ways in in sort of club environments as well so it's really a really cool film to be a part of i hope so too i hope i can find some uh, uh, more films to work on <laughs> uh, molly i just wanted to say thanks as well because like you know i said at the start about the kind of you know this throwing up um kind of conversation and stuff and even i think for me kind of a slightly personal thing was that it kind of triggered a memory in me that of something that i'd gone through when i was a lot younger and it really allowed me to kind of have a conversation with myself about that situation and kind of come to peace with it in a way and almost address it in a way that didn't need to lay blame or accuse it or whatever and stuff, but just kind of almost kind of have a conversation with myself about it and go, do you know what? That probably wasn't the right situation to and deal with it in that way. So thank you. And this film really, I didn't even realise that I needed to have that conversation with myself and this film encouraged me to do that. And I don't know, I feel like I've kind of, I've let go of something that I needed to let go. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It means a lot. That's why we made it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really yeah, glad. it's brilliant. I'm so excited to share this episode, but also just to see people's response to watching this film because I think it's going to be um, be extraordinary. And congratulations on everything that you've, you know, quite rightly received so far with the film. Thanks for your time today, James. Thanks, Molly. Thank, thank you so much. much. More of Jacob's score for you there, rounding off the first part of this soundtrack in Double Bill with James and Molly Manning-Walker. Next up then is Kitty Green, whose film The Royal Hotel actually explores similar themes in some ways, but from a very different direction. The Royal Hotel is scored by Jed Palmer and we'll begin with his cue, You Like Stars?
thanks so much for your time. It's so great to chat to you again. The last time we chatted about the assistant and stuff and just, you know, kind of really enjoying you as a filmmaker and a storyteller, when you see you have a new production on the way, it's kind of like, oh, great. And I had no idea what I was going into with the Royal Hotel. And I'm kind of glad, to be honest, because I feel like I was so immersed in the experience that I, I, make, I didn't make any notes. And that's such a rarity, you know, in terms of when I know I'm going to chat to someone as well. Because I was so immersed in it and I was so driven by the kind of the build and the tension and the characters. And so congratulations. Oh, cool. Thank you. It, I was reading as well, but it'd be great to hear from you just with regards to the genesis of the story oh. and kind of what inspired you by that. Yeah, I uh, was, uh, I don't know, I was looking to make a movie in Australia, I guess, because I hadn't made, I'm Australian and I hadn't made an Australian film. And I think my parents, I was wanting to spend more time with them and do some things like that. So uh, I was looking for a project and I was on a jury. I saw a documentary called Hotel Cool Gardy about two Scandinavian backpackers who took a job in an outback pub. And I immediately thought, oh, this this could work <laughs> as a f- fiction feature. There was so much in it, in just the dynamics between the women and the men, but also them being foreign and trying to understand Australian culture. And um, there was a lot in there for for a screenplay, essentially. So that, yeah, was the jumping off point, really. And then in terms of kind of navigating the story that you wanted to tell kind of within that as an inspiration sort of thing, did you, did you spend much time, you know, in kind of that type of environment? Did you, you know, what was your kind of journey, you know, from that to, to writing the screenplay? Oh, it's funny, but people often ask me that. I'm because I did a lot of research for The Assistant, my last film, and I spoke to a lot of assistants, but this time we didn't really need to do that much. I think we've we've all, myself and my co-writer, Oscar Redding, have spent enough time in pubs and yeah. <laughs> met all those characters along the way. And yeah, it didn't feel like it had, I had to reach very far to figure out who they were, you know, between the two of us yeah. and some stories and we were able to use them. And yeah, so it that was sort of where, it, yeah. Yeah, so it kind of just came from our wild imagination yeah 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 absolutely it's uh, yeah we've all been in pubs and I worked in pubs or in some way shape or form so you know that kind of what that environment can be and also that kind of knife edge and environment that it can be as well you know in terms of not really knowing at what side of it you're going to fall or people in the Mm -hmm. pub and the environment are going to fall and I think Mm -hmm. that building tension in the way that you that you have in this film is extraordinary and the landscape I think is a big part of that the, the, the vast space that there is, but the claustrophobic nature that you almost feel on behalf of these girls is is kind of like you feel this weight almost kind of on your chest as you're watching it. I mean, music's a big part of that and the sound. Production as well is really important in terms of, and, and also the way that your cinematographer has worked. It's, it's, a lot of that must be in the script. Yeah, I guess it's a lot of it's in the script. In terms of just like, yeah, slow. you never want to let the air out. And my, mo- my mother, my yeah. mother the day and my mother said to me there's not enough landscape shots I wanted more landscape and I was saying every time you cut to the landscape off in the wrong spots it's like you all the tension disappears really quickly so it's just being very careful about the building blocks of that and what and trying to keep the air in the balloon is the way I describe it you don't want the air to let you don't want to let the air out you want to kind of keep it tight um so it can pop at any moment um but there was yeah so it's a lot of that sound you're right lighting I mean a lot of it to be honest hangs on Julia's Ghana, the lead actor's performance and her face and her tension, her watching kind of these events unfold and you can see kind of the terror in her eyes and I think mm. a lot of it sort of lands there. But, yeah, it's a sort of a collection of things, I think. And with regards to Julia, I mean, she's she's extraordinary and this kind of pairing with Jessica is great. The whole cast is really brilliant because you do have these 
kind of supporting characters who are very, incredibly important to the whole drive of the, the narrative. Toby Wallace, who, oh my God, amazing. everything I see him in, he's just extraordinary. I think mm-hmm. Baby Teeth was the first thing that I saw him in and then just recently saw him in The Bike Riders actually as well. He's just got this ability to kind of, um, I don't want to give anything away for anybody within this film sort of thing, but you kind of like you're on his side mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. He's got this ability to just kind of go, come on. And you're like, okay, yeah, Yeah. all right. He's extraordinary. Was casting this a fun process? Because you do have so many brilliant little characters, characters who are more involved, as well as Julia and and Jessica. Yeah, it was fun. It was stressful. I mean, you you want them all to to feel different enough. There's always this fear that, oh, is that going to be too same-samey? And it's always trying to figure out how to, and they're all kind of white men, you know, and they're all sort of like, if you look at them, object like the, sometimes the headshots show up. Like, I think I just looked at it on whatever, some something, IMDb or something, and it was all the yeah. images. Oh, they all kind of look the same. But they're so different in the way they kind of approach those characters. So it really was finding the right actor for the, that role and making sure they were unique and bringing their own energy. And Toby brings such a specific thing. He's so cheeky and charming and it's very slippery as well which is kind of wonderful it's a sort of yeah that character's a really interesting one it's a kind of cowardly yeah. character ultimately I think and like there's lots baked into that but he was a joy to work with they all were to be honest um it was a very good group and that was sort of something we were also looking at in casting was like let's get good people who understand the material what we're doing the sensitivity around it and yeah that was actually the first the most important thing um was that I think the character of Dolly as well, you know, another kind of complicated character that you, like you say, it's kind of almost with Matty and Dolly in particular as characters, it's about holding back the story almost in a way, isn't it? Without kind of giving the audience too much information sort of thing. And I think Daniel Henshaw, who plays Dolly, is just, again, it's kind of, it's a, it's a hard role, but it's done so well. He's, he's um, mm. from, from the off, he's terrifying. It's kind of like, just gives you chills sort of thing. That's quite a, I don't know, it's quite an awkward ask of someone. Is, is it kind of a way of kind of going, can you be really menacingly scary and intimidating to women yeah. particularly? He often <laughs> plays those roles. I think he kind of gets, he's a little sick of it actually. But yeah, so it wasn't that difficult. He brings it very easily, which is kind of scary. Um, But yeah, he can kind of just turn it on and um. And then figuring out how far to go with it. I think we did a lot of those. There's a big, big scene with him where a lot of it we kind of pulled back because it didn't yeah. need to be big. It sort of can be kind of scary, even in his composure. He's kind of yeah. terrifying. Yeah, he was, he was, it was wonderful. It was a good, I really cast him. I knew that I wanted to see him work with Julia. I thought that would be an interesting pairing. And the two of them together would kind of, was exciting me. So that kind of almost helped me decide I want to make the film was knowing that would be these oh, kind of wow. with her plus these people would be interesting just also yeah. as an American girl like dumped into an Australian kind of setting and world when she's completely unfamiliar with it was 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 exciting to me as well and what was the reality of of the set you know in terms of you take us to this place and we're there you know you feel like you're you're there you can feel the heat you can feel the dust that kind of thing as well where did you shoot uh, it was freezing, actually, so I'm glad you can feel the heat. Um, it was shot a few hours north of Adelaide in a tiny town. We shot, to be honest, the interiors are in the studio. So, mm. But the first two weeks we shot the exteriors and it was freezing. It was, you know, zero degrees every night. The girls were blue in the face and it was really hard to, to make it look kind of warm. 
And then we moved into the studio and it got a lot easier because we just pumped the heating in there and everyone got too hot. And it was kind of the opposite problem. But yeah, it was it was tough. It was really they really lived it. It wasn't um wasn't easy. <laughs> That's for sure. Wow. <laughs> they were put through it. Yeah. You, you'd you never know. <laughs> I think it helps the performances, though, that tension. A little bit is like, oh, we're so cold. Yeah. Yeah, so sharp. Yeah. And when it came to music and sound and, and Jed Palmer, who um, whose work I loved on was Animals, he worked mm. on the adaptation mm. of um, my Jim Unsworth's novel, which I thought was amazing. And again, two great, female characters in that as well and um, mm-hmm. but what was it about Jed's work and 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 what was the were the conversations that you had with regards to what your needs were for this film and these characters in the story hmm I'd worked with Jed before he made one of my documentaries when I was yeah. younger so we kind of he knows what I like he kind of gets my aesthetic I, I don't like a lot of music and he he loves music and I hate it so we're always battling about uh, trying to pull it all back and I always want less 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 and he always wants more 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 but the good thing about Jed is he gives me so much and then I can kind of shape what I need out of it and kind of pull things in when I need to yeah. but I always see score as a little manipulative emotionally and I make these movies that's very specifically like about trying to figure out if you're in danger or if there's a threat or not mm-hmm. like it's a it's character in both the last two films who's been trying to figure these spaces out so I never want to guide an audience that much I kind of want to leave it up to them to figure it out as she does. So it always is quite pulled in. And then it's about choosing when we kind of use sort of flourishes of things and how we kind of use the soundscape more so than yeah. the score to build tension. When you were thinking about the music that he was going to create in terms of, you know, what you wanted that to be, whether that be around genre, instrumentation, tonally kind of thing, were, were there any reference points or what were, did you know what you were, you know, for when you did want to use music, what kind of mood you were looking for in terms of what it, what it was, you know, was it electronic? Was it not, you know, that kind of thing? Was there a journey for that? It's interesting because the music is so subtle in it that it's like yeah. kind of like, <sighs> I'm not sure. I think he just would try things. I see, and and I would sort of things I liked and things I didn't. I hated anything that went too genre-y, that felt too horror movie. There's certain sounds that he was pulling out. I remember one sounded like gargoyles or something. It just it was beautiful, but it felt like the wrong movie. Like you know, where I mean, yeah. it just feels so naturalistic at times, and we really pull it into quite naturalistic at times. And so, a lot of it is just. It comes out of the environment a lot. It's like kind of the tones yeah. of the bridges and the tones of the 
but beer taps and kind of groaning pipes and all of that informed, I think, what he created in a way. So yeah, it was multi-layered process of adding more sound and then adding bits of music and then droning kind of our sounds and things like that. I think that environment is so important to allow it space and to breathe as well you know whether that is in the pub or the exterior you know mm. in terms of that kind of that vastness but or, the, or but that kind of claustrophobic thing as well you know in terms of I think that kind of noise of a pub is kind of you know it's a specific thing is it? it's an energy in a way I think as well yeah. I grew up in one so it's kind of like it's almost like constant drone in my head in a way I can see why you wanted to pull back because so much of that environment they're, that they're in is a character, really, in terms of they're not just there, they're kind of in it in a way, if that makes sense. It sounds weird, but yeah. Yeah, and we have a lot of jukebox. The jukebox plays a lot. So there's a lot of music we use that's existing that we're kind of filling the space with. So it almost becomes about when the music stops and what that yeah. does. And the music stops. There's still Jed's built things in there, but it's they're very subtle it's almost like they're kind of like is that the environment grown is that the pipes groaning or is that the mute like a lot of it's sort of in that space which is really i really love and i find it it's a lot of of fun and and that adds to the tension too because even like a subtle pitch change of like you know whatever the kettle boiling can really kind of influence tension and make it ratchet up whatever's going on so yeah how did you navigate that kind of you know those needle drops and that existing music because it can do many things with that. You know, even when you're talking about music being like a kind of um, an emotional pull in a way, you know, songs can, uh, they can time something. They can put a time on something. They can, you know, if, if it's of a certain popularity, it can create, uh, I guess, memories in people's heads, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. where they were as an audience and stuff. So what was the kind of journey with that and, and deciding on what you were going to use? And also because it can be really expensive. Oh, I can. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted Kylie and that was going to be expensive. I wanted Land Down Under, the remix that was very popular on TikTok at the time, and that was going to be expensive. So we kind of knew that we were going to blow the budget out with those. And then it was about finding more obscure kind of Australian bands to fill yeah. the rest of the lots. And, and they're not obscure, to be honest. These are big bands. But, I mean, because they're Australian and they don't have that much presence overseas, I think we were able to kind of negotiate and get what we needed. But... Um, often it was listen the key was really that the jukebox was in the shop it's in the back of the room it was lent to us by a filmmaker Warwick Thornton he lent that's his jukebox that he lent us oh and wow so, and it's beautiful but we had like this kind of mandate that like okay the this jukebox was, was built I mean probably existed around you know we we're trying to figure out when the jukebox was probably built and then where so nothing could be too new nothing could be beyond this date and everything kind of had to circle around that everything had to be popular enough that it would be on a jukebox or Mm -hmm. be on a best of 20 
you know, 20 or two. Yeah. You know, no, that's what I call music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, so it was good, kind of good, because then we could kind of play. Once we got kind of these, the parameters of that, what would they play in a pub? What would the men select versus what, you know? And so there's a few songs that we had a battle about. There's one Augie March track that's very popular and plays kind of in more in the more hipster areas of Melbourne and we were a bit worried about that one, but we kind of liked that that was, we knew that they play it on Triple J a lot here, a station that everyone listens to and they have the hottest 100 and it won one year. So we knew that it would possibly be in this rotation and the girls could pick it out. And it's kind of all these discussions about, well, who's put that track on? It was very yeah. specific, actually. <laughs> um, but it really added to it. And then again, it was mostly finding something that had the right vibe and the right tone and like, what, what are we trying to do here in this scene and how dark should it feel and how yeah, how pub rocky does it feel or is it a little lighter? Is there, you know, there's a really warm track in that Dolly scene, which is one of the most um, intense scenes in the movie. We kind of, you know, in that sense we contrasted it with something a little warmer and more of a ballad. And So, yeah, a lot of those discussions were kind of, it's huge. It was a big, a big network of yeah, people I bet. that were talking about this. You need so, to, you yeah. could almost release your own, no, that's what I call the Royal Hotel. Exactly. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. do have a little Spotify playlist which we've built, which I, I, yeah, which I'm excited about. But yeah, that's great. Was it important for you for the for the actors to be privy to what they would choose in that situation in the pub, or did you play music? Did you clear the music in advance, or kind of what was was that all kind of in post? This is crazy, but this is true. I've never... <laughs> we had um the angels. Are you ever going to see my face again? That we'd play before the big pub scenes because there's a bit where the crowd respond. There's a bit where the crowd. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, you can swear as yeah. much as you like. I'm Scottish. <laughs> Come on, Kitty. <laughs> well, the crowd respond. No way. Get fuck fuck off, and they yell it. And so that's the response to the chorus. And so it would get all the extras and the background actors like into it, and they would kind of fire them up. And so we play that often before the big scenes, and then everyone would be kind of up you know and that really helped the, um, the kind of atmosphere <laughs> yeah but that track's not in the movie it's just we it was used on the set as like a inspiration I guess mode on set it's so great (laughs) it's amazing how certain songs do that for like crowds isn't it like literally you can kind of drop in something into a crowd and it's like a kind of explosion Mm -hmm. in a way that's absolutely brilliant I remember growing up you know I mentioned that I grew up in a pub and we had a little games room and there was a jukebox and that sort of thing and it was so exciting when the rotation of the songs would be changed sort of thing to see what what would go in I don't know there's such a unique thing jukeboxes I'm interested to know what inspired you to to write that into the script. Or was that just because, you know, they were always in pubs or was it a specific? Uh, I think, that? yeah, I don't think it was a script thing. I think it was, oh, actually, to be honest, it's in the script. It says like a song is on the jukebox, but yeah, that's really not in any specific way. But my production designer tracked that jukebox down and then we kind of just, 
with the sound team, kind of that became the inspiration. Also, the sonically what that does, like the way it fills that space is really different and yeah. kind of, and you can kind of play with it in a way where you can manipulate it so that the the words aren't really interfering, aren't stepping on our words and kind of like air yeah. it out a little bit. And so there's a lot of tricks we use to make sure it was sort of in the space, filling the space, but not stepping on kind of the dialogue and things like that. It's also quite interesting to think as well of, of how uh, an individual can almost set the mood in a room by choosing a song on a jukebox you know if one of those guys one of those guys in that in the room is feeling a certain way by picking a certain song it's kind of telling the room how he's feeling almost in a way it's quite clever isn't it yeah I mean the song that Dolly that's on the Dolly song is a very sweet song and I think we're always saying he's trying to connect even though he's so aggressive doesn't know how to do it but he's really trying to connect to those and he's really trying to like be bond with them and, and and just failing miserably. And so the idea that there's this very sweet tune playing was like a, kind of very important to us in that regard. But it's it was also just a lot of fun, honestly, crawling yeah. through, like, looking, listening through all this music and trying to figure out what fits. And yeah, it was, it was good. It was, it was a good time. And what we couldn't afford, you know, like we really wanted yeah. you know, us and couldn't afford it. <laughs> like that. But yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It's yeah. crazy how much, yeah. What What is that song that's playing, do you know with Dolly oh that's the Augie March one crowded hour that's playing yeah. yeah the worry was it's a little Fitzroy it's which is a little like cool I don't know what your what's the equivalent of Fitzroy wherever you are <laughs> but like the most the hip suburb plays that you know song but we love that the idea that some aspect yeah. you can draw that the girls have picked it the girls have found it you know whatever it's kind of making yeah being this pub at this time but yeah now should you expect to see something that you hadn't seen in somebody you know since you were 16 if love is it bought from the blue then what is it bought but a glorified screw that doesn't hold nothing together Far from these nonsense bars And they know when music It's making me sick And I know it's making you sick There's nothing there It's like eating air It's like drinking gin With nothing else in And that doesn't hold me together But for one Crowded out You were the only one in the room I sailed around all those bumps in the night I thought I'd find my call in September in the middle of that purple June. I was out in Australia, uh, oh my God, it's got to be 15 years ago now with my husband and he was doing like a tour of festivals like Rhythm in, in, in New Zealand as well, like Rhythm and Vine Festival and a, a festival in Taz. And every festival we arrived at was the same two songs that were being played by the bands at the same time. It was Grizzly Bear and Temper Trap, Sweet Disposition. And it's so weird in terms of like those those songs now are almost kind of embedded in my head to that specific moment in terms of mm-hmm. like, I can't, it's almost like a kind of casket of time with those particular two songs sort of thing as well. And I, I kind of love that you've kind of incorporated songs that are big in a time within the narrative of this, this story. It's so clever because it gives you an insight into you know that whole sort of thing when you're when you're traveling around and there are songs that are part of that journey as well it's brilliant oh thank you it's so great to chat to you about another great film the kind of tension you've created in this film is so great it's just um yeah i really enjoyed it it's great to chat to you kitty thanks so much for your time thank you so much it's lovely to chat
From Jed Palmer's score to the Royal Hotel, that's Magica, rounding off the second part of Soundtracking with Kitty Green. My huge thanks to Kitty, Molly and James for joining me. Both How to Have Sex and The Royal Hotel are out in cinemas now, so maybe you could do a double header as we've done today. We'll pop these interviews up on our YouTube channel too, so do subscribe to us there and follow us on our socials. We are at Soundtracking UK. Head to edithbowman.com if you'd like to listen to any of the 400-odd episodes we have for you, including my chat with Charlotte Regan, for whom Molly was DOP for on Scrapper. Speaking of which, my next guest is the composer of that film, the fabulous Patrick Johnson. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Music